Thank you for joining us today at Our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in seven different locations. We hope that today's message encourages and empowers you on your spiritual journey and helps you grow deeper in your relationship with God. To learn more about Our Savior's Church and how you can get involved, you can visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. As many of you know, we are kicking off a new series called Prioritize. We just ended our series, Who is Jesus? And um, in this series, the series, again, is called Prioritize, but it's Prioritize First Things First. Everybody say First Things First. Now, I've noticed something as a pastor. I've noticed, really, just being a, a person alive in this time, I've noticed that right about this time, is when a lot of people, a lot of us, tend to get stressed out. So right around this time of year, when stress just starts compounding, and I see people reacting certain ways and arguing with, about arguments they wouldn't normally argue about, and being real tense, and maybe even driving in a way that they wouldn't normally drive, and that says a lot for the state of Louisiana if it gets worse. And kids going back to school, that contributes to the stress. Now, listen, many of you were like, I can't wait for my kids to get out of the house, get back to school. And then you realize I have to wake up early with them. (laughs) And the stress and the, the pressure and sports games, driving your kid across town or across the state even in some cases, new bills, new routines, political talk. Add watering your lawn to the list of things that you're going to quote unquote get to, right? And so this is that time of year where things start to, the stress starts to increase. As a matter of fact, it's not just something I'm noticing. I looked it up and there's a website called firstbeat.com. It's a um, uh, physiology-based website platform that tracks stress and recovery and all of those different things in people. And this is what they said. Stress levels increase steadily as we move from July through the fall. And in December, the amount of stress is at its highest with an average of 51% of measured stress per 24 hours. There's a significant jump, according to this website, a significant jump in people's stress level that they've read with reading of people's, you know, physiology from July is the biggest jump into August, and it jumps in September, goes up, and it's at its peak in December. And so this is just that time of year where you're coming off the summer break, you're coming off the wishing you had had a summer break, and now you realize things are back, and it's stress, and it's all kind of pressures, and all of these things. And let me give you, just an older people, bear with me for those who have younger kids. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you I want to give you a shout out this morning. Let me tell you a stressful conversation for people with younger kids that some of you will relate to. You ready for this? It's 8.55 at night, and you remind your kids, hey, you're supposed to be in bed at 9 o'clock. Okay, got it, Mom. 9 o'clock. Are you in bed yet? No. I'm on my way. Okay. 9.15 comes. Are you finally in bed? I just remembered I have homework, Lord. 
If you didn't have a prayer life, it started right there. <laughs> they finally get to bed about 10, 15, 10, 30. Six o'clock is when they're supposed to wake up. 6.30, they're still in bed. Why aren't you awake? For some reason, I'm so tired. I'm a, Lord, I'm gonna kill him. I'm gonna kill him. I prayed for them, but now I'm gonna kill them. And some of you have had that kind of stress, and you get in your car, and then you realize, oh, we didn't take the first week of school selfie. You better smile. Don't act like I'm the only one that's happened to. There's so many things that come to us in a given day, and there are times when, if we're being honest, the need seems so great that we just say yes. Because we're already overwhelmed. We just keep, we'll just keep saying yes because, hey, why not? I'm already stressed out. And you just keep saying yes and yes and yes and yes until finally something, the straw that breaks the camel's back, something happens and you just snap. What do you mean? I'm just, I'm not a vending machine. Everybody wants me to give. All I did was ask for the remote, but you can keep it. You can have it if you really want it. Because you just pop. Because the stress just keeps growing. Well, I want to talk to you this morning, and it really in this series, because God has something to say about these areas of our life. And God has something to say about the things that we prioritize in our lives. I want us to take a look at God's word because, again, for some of us, or most of us, the things that you have in your life, it's not that these things are necessarily bad, it's that they're in the wrong place. Some of us have good things in our lives, but we've put good things in a place in our lives that those good things should not be. Something else should be in that thing's place. They aren't bad, they're just out of order. They're misplaced. I talked about this earlier. My chiropractor goes to our church, a lady named Tina Terrio, and I go to her to get an adjustment. I go to her to get aligned. And what happens is something in my body is out of place and it's out of the proper order and she has to bring it back into order to get rid of the discomfort and the pain. In our lives, we have things in our lives that are good, they should be there, but because they're in the wrong place, it's causing discomfort, it's causing stress, it's calling, causing problems in your life. And God's word does not just wanna talk about quote unquote church things or quote unquote spiritual things. He has something to say about all of our life. Why? Because he is Lord of all of our life. He has something to say about these things, not just, not just the spiritual things, the quote unquote normal things, something that God wants to speak to. And so as we start off this series, I wanna kick it off with perhaps the most important priority of all of the priorities that we're going to list. As a matter of fact, if this priority is not properly taken care of, if this priority is not properly looked after and done well, everything else we're going to talk about in this series, it's going to, it's going to be good stuff. We're going to talk about family. We're going to talk about finances. We're going to talk about a lot of practical things in your life. But if this one is not done well, those are no good to you. This one is the first. This one is the most important. 
Everything else will flow out of this. So make sure that you get this. Are y'all with me? Three people. The rest of y'all, are y'all with me? Okay. So I want to start off in a book that is normally unlikely to start off in. But as, as we've already heard, it's something that the Spirit of God is speaking to us as a church. And this was not planned. I want you to turn to the book of Revelation. And we're going to go to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Now, before we get to it, I want to give you a little background, a little history, a little behind the scenes of this book. A lot of people are intimidated by the book of Revelation. A lot of people don't understand it. A lot of people go, that's scary. I'm staying away from it. But let me give you the background of this book. The background of this book is John the Beloved Apostle. That's what the Bible knows him, knows him as, John the Beloved. He was one of the 12 disciples or apostles who followed Jesus. He's an older man now. And according to history, he's the only one of the 12 apostles who was not martyred for his faith, though he did suffer. At one point, history tells us that John the Beloved was literally boiled in hot oil trying to kill him, and he lived. And he continued to preach the gospel. He was exiled, literally taken away from his home and exiled on an island called the island of Patmos. And it's around this time frame that Jesus showed up to John in a vision and began to speak to him. And he told him, John, I want you to speak. I want you to take this revelation. Everybody say revelation. revelation. I had you say that because it's not the book of Revelations, plural. It's the book of Revelation. And Jesus says, I want you to take this revelation and give it to the seven churches in the Asia Minor area and beyond. And he speaks to this revelation to John. And this, these are the churches that he's talking to, the church of Ephesus, the church of Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, not the eagles, and Laodicea. God's speaking to them. Jesus is speaking directly to these churches. How many of you know if Jesus himself says, I have something I want to say to this church, how many of you know it's important to hear it? Yeah. It's important to pay attention to what he is saying. For those who have an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Now, that's, that's a bit of the background. Let's see what it begins with. It starts with this. Jesus is speaking to John to tell uh, Ephesus this. He says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Some of you went, that's why you lost me right there. That's why I don't read the book of Revelation. So let me explain what's happening. When Jesus is talking about the seven stars, in chapter 1, he he, the Bible tells us that those stars represent the messengers of God to the churches. Each one of those churches, God spoke to the messenger. Some scholars say angel would believe it's the, really the pastor or the leader, the messenger of God who was responsible to speak the word of the Lord to these churches. God spoke to that messenger, and those messengers were the seven stars. Seven churches, seven messengers. And the seven gold lampstands represented the church. Each church was a lampstand. 
And so Jesus is saying, I'm walking around the churches. In other words, it's like I'm inspecting the churches. I see my church, and I'm I'm not just leaving them. I mean, Jesus isn't just in heaven going, one day I'm going to see you again when I come back. No, he inspects us. He walks amongst us even to this day, checking our fruit, checking our health, checking our lives. And he's walking among the golden lampstands, and he's saying, I hold the stars in my hand. I I hold the leadership of these churches in my hand. Now, I've told you what those things represent. Let me give you a little bit of background on Ephesus. I'm giving you this. I want you to see it. I want you to get the context of this. Ephesus was, if it sounds familiar, it should, because the Apostle Paul wrote a book to them called the book of Ephesians. He planted a church there around Acts chapter 18 and 19 is when he planted a church in Ephesus. He went there preaching the gospel, making disciples, doing those things. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, spent probably three years of his life there in Ephesus, longer than any other church that he'd planted. He stayed there, tilling the ground, working with the church, discipling people, getting things in order. He cared for this church. And at one point while he's caring for this church, a riot breaks out. And people from all over the city come and they fill the amphitheater and they're creating chaos and a riot. And the mayor of that city has to come and calm them down and warn them that if they don't disperse this riot, Rome's going to come and basically they would destroy the city. At least that's the thought. And so they go back, but they made it very clear, we don't like you Christians. We don't want you here. We don't want Paul and his people here doing their thing. So this was a contentious city to the gospel. Now, another thing you need to know about Ephesus, and I'm going somewhere with this. I know some of you are like, I I came here for you to talk to me about priorities. Okay, we're getting there. We're getting there. Just stay with me. Ephesus was a very prosperous city. And some believe it was kind of the unofficial capital of Rome in Asia Minor. It was a very wealthy city. It's a very cosmopolitan city. There was a major um, river, the Caester River, that, that met the Aegean Sea. And so it was a port city. And in that day, we didn't have 18-wheelers and trains bringing goods. We had boats bringing goods to port cities. And if you were a port city, that's where the wealth came. Now, not only was it a wealthy city, it was a religious city. As you've heard, there was Christianity there. There was also Judaism there. There were also six temples built to Caesar there, multiple different Caesars in that that community. And in that community, in that city, was one of the seven wonders of the world. Many of you have heard of the seven wonders of the world in Egypt and all of these places. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was in Ephesus. It was the temple to the goddess Artemis or Diana. And this temple, there's beautiful pictures of it to this day, was massive. And for it to be in the ancient world is a wonder. It was huge. The, co- the columns of it, very little of it is still in existence today, but you can go to Ephesus to this day and see the pillars of where it was. It was a massive, massive temple, and it brought a lot of money into that community. 
As a matter of fact, people would come to that temple because she was the goddess, Diana was the goddess of fertility, or so they believed. We know that's not true. But there would be women who would come to this, this temple, and there was a big tree in front of it, and they would touch the tree in hopes that they would become pregnant because she was, again, the goddess of fertility. So this city was full of pagan idol worship and all of these different things. And that's why they didn't like the church. Because Paul comes along, and I'm sure they were okay with people believing whatever it is they wanted to believe until it started affecting their money. How many of you know God is cool until he starts messing with my finances? Because this city was like a New York or a Paris. People would come just to see the Temple of Diana, and the same way people would come just to see the Eiffel Tower or just to see the Statue of Liberty, right? Or the Empire State. People from all over would come to Ephesus to see this temple, and they would sell these little false goddesses, these little idols to people, and they would buy them and take them home and pray to this false goddess, Diana. This is the backdrop in the history. That's why the riot broke out. Now, the last bit of history I'm going to give you. The church was planted by Paul in 52, around 52 AD. By the time Jesus is giving this message to John to give to the church in Ephesus, it's around 96 AD. It's around 40 years after the fact. Now, let's continue to listen to what Jesus said, as you have already heard this morning. Verse 2 says this, I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars, and you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Now, how many of you know it's one thing to be uh, complimented or commended by your boss, it's a whole nother thing when Jesus is doing the commending. It's one thing to have your spouse say, good job. It's another thing for Jesus to say, good job. Now, let me just clarify something. Jesus doesn't give fluff. Jesus is not into flattery. He says what he means, and he means what he says. And he's saying this to the church. He's commending them. He's saying, listen, I've seen how hard you work. He wasn't just talking about how they work at the sugar plant, sugar mill. He's saying, I know how hard you've worked building the kingdom of God in Ephesus. I've seen your labor. I've seen your hard work. I've seen your toiling. I've seen your patient endurance. You've endured things as you tried to build my kingdom. I've seen your morality. I've seen your character. I've seen how you've been willing to take a stand for righteousness when others have not been. I commend you for these things. As a matter of fact, you've not been easily fooled. People have come to you claiming to be men of God, claiming to be apostles, and instead of you simply believing them, you've tested them and you've learned that they're false. So Jesus is complimenting them. He's commending them. Remember, they were surrounded by false gods, false idols, all kind of idolatry. One of the seven wonders of the world is right there in their city, yet they took a stand for evil against, they took a stand, excuse me, against evil and wickedness. And Jesus is commending them, and it doesn't stop there. He goes on to say this, 
You've patiently suffered for me without quitting. These people endured persecution. These people endured suffering. They were mocked. Some of them were arrested. Some of them were beaten. Yet they endured it for the faith of Christ. And here's Jesus giving them high commendation. Remember, this is where the riot happened. They stood in the face of adversity. What an honor. And it would be fantastic to end it there, but that's not where Jesus ends. He says this in verse 4. But I have this compliment, excuse me, this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. You've done all of these great things, and I see it, and I recognize it. But you have, you, you've lost something along the way. You've lost your love for me, and you've lost your love for people. The book of, um, excuse me, the, the ESV translation says it like this. I know your works, your toils, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Another translation says, you have lost your first love. How many of you remember that song by the Righteous Brothers? You've lost that love and don't act like you're holy and spiritual and you never saw Top Gun and you don't listen to that song. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you've done a lot. You've done a lot of good things, but it is possible, listen to church, don't miss this. It's possible to do the right thing the wrong way. It's possible to do the right thing with the wrong heart. That's what we talk at length about in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus meant it then, and he meant it again when he said it in Revelation, the same way he means it today. He's saying, I don't want you to just serve me with your outward actions. I want you to serve me from your heart. I want your love. I want your devotion. I want first place in your life. And he's telling them this. And can I just tell you, part of what causes so much stress in our lives and it's this feeling that we feel like I have to do more. I got to do more. God wants me to do more. The church wants me to do more. The church needs me to do more. And, and, and my kids need me to do more. And, and my job needs me. And, and everybody just needs me to do more and more and more. And, and God is saying, I don't, I don't necessarily need you to do more. I need you to do what you're doing with the right heart. I need you to do the right stuff the right way with the right heart. And I think we get so afraid that if we surrender to God, he's just going to pile on all of this stuff and, live, and make us live this extremely miserable, um, self-hating life. Can I be honest with you? When you do what God has called you to do, you do what you were created to do. Joy comes with that. Does it get hard? You better believe it gets hard. It gets tough. But we're not carrying it alone. We carry it with the one who gave it to us, 
who can ultimately carry it. Jesus is saying, I want you to serve me with a sincere love. See, religion says, do more stuff. And some of us have lived with this looming feeling, I have to do more, I have to do more, I have to do more. And it's like, it's hanging over our head and we feel like it's never going to be enough. Can I help you? It will never be enough. Because God's ultimate goal is not that you just do a ton of stuff and that's what gets his approval and that's what makes you holy and righteous. He makes you holy and righteous. He wants you to love him and to serve him with that love for him. That's what he wants. Now, here's the point. Here's where everything in this sermon series is going to flow from. Is he first? Is he first in your life? Is your love for him, does your love for him take preeminence in your life? Does it take priority in your life? Does everything you do flow from that genuine love for him? Is he the priority? Let me tell you something about God. He's not okay with being second place. He's God. And if you're wondering, well, Pastor, what does God want from me? I'll tell you. He tells us what he wants from us. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, he says this. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first prominent priority, preeminent, the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Everything flows out of your love for God and your love for people. And some of you may say, loving God is easy, Pastor. It's the people I don't love. Can I be honest? The two go hand in hand. If you love him, you're going to eventually love others. Because you'll be overwhelmed with his love, and that has to spill out. You can't not love. You can't say, I love you and hate what you love. Unless what you love is green beans. That's a different conversation, though, for another day. Here's the priority. Love Jesus first. That's the priority. Love God more, more than anything else. That's the priority. Everything we do flows with that. Not, we don't serve him simply out of obligation. Let me ask you a question. When you do things out of obligation, how do you feel? I'll tell you how. I felt, I'll tell you how I think you feel. When you do things simply out of obligation, you feel like you're losing something. I'm doing this because I have to, I don't want to, and you feel like I'm giving up something in order to do this. But when you do something motivated by love, there's a difference. Even if it's sacrificial, you don't feel necessarily like you're losing something, you feel like you're contributing to something. You're giving to, you're adding value to a whole, a big picture. You see it because your motivation is love. Your motivation is not, I have to. Your motivation is, because I love you, I get to. 
I get to. That's being motivated with the right motivation. That's, there's a difference there between being serving God because I'm obligated to versus I'm serving God because I love him. I'm grateful for all that he's done for me. I've talked about this before, but I've talked about family trips. And notice I said family trips, not vacations. Because there's a big difference. I've told you, if there's anything you remember from your pastor is this. The difference between a family trip and a vacation. A vacation is me and Lauren. Lionel Richie's playing in the background. That's vacation. Family trips are me and Lauren and the kids and anybody else that comes. That's called a family trip. And can I be honest with you? My, our family trips for a good little while, good amount of time, began with arguments. Almost all the time. We're stressed out by the time we're leaving. to get in the car because we're running late. Everybody wants to stop. They go to the bathroom like 18 times before we get out of Lafayette. <laughs> People want coffee and gummy bears. And I'm like, I, I want to get there on time. And I'm stressed out, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm paying for this trip. Do they not know? I'm tired too. I'm ex- I need this rest. I've been dealing with crazy church people. Come on, Pastor Paul. <laughs> and then me and Lauren end up arguing. Yes, we argue because she's not perfect sometimes. If- <laughs> true. (laughs) There's more to the story, but it's true. And I can, I didn't like how that started, but I can't remember there was a moment where I shifted my perspective. I don't remember why. I don't know if I'd heard someone say it or just God went and spoke to me. And I said, you know what, instead of my goal on our vacation being or family trip, excuse me, instead of my goal being that I'm going to finally get some rest and I'm going to finally enjoy myself, I'm going to make my goal that they get to enjoy themselves. I'm going to go into this with the perspective that my wife is going to enjoy this, that my kids are going to have a great time. And guess what started happening? When I focused on loving them well, I got what I needed. We weren't as stressed out. We weren't as bogged down. Why? Because my perspective changed from me and what I was obligated to do for them versus my love for them and making sure they're okay. Love became the motivation, and it changed things. Now, again, Ephesus was doing stuff, but they were doing stuff without love. And when you do stuff without love, I'm just be honest, you get tired. It doesn't last quite as long. When you do it because at first it's the right thing to do, but there's no love attached to it, that doesn't last very long because you get tired of doing the right thing. First things first, love God. Ask yourself, have I replaced loving God with doing stuff for God? It's a big question I need you to ask yourself. Have I replaced loving God with doing stuff for God? 
What's your motivation for serving? What's your motivation for leading? What's your motivation for attending church? If you're here just to come, listen, I'm glad you're here, but there's more to this than coming to church. Is it because I love him or am I here because I have to be here? Why am I doing what am I doing? Now, let's listen to what Jesus continues to say. In Revelations 2, verse 5, it says this. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, it says, do the works you did at first. And some of you are going, wait, see, pastor, I told you, it's about doing more stuff. No, no, no. No, you're supposed to do, it's not that you have to do more stuff, it's that you're supposed to do the right stuff. You're supposed to be doing the right stuff with the right heart. Some of you are doing a bunch of stuff, but you're not doing the right stuff with the right heart. Listen, when I counsel couples and, and meet with couples, I met with a guy um, Friday just having lunch with him, and it's just he and I, and most of the time when it's just me and one of the spouses, I know I'm only getting half the truth, so, but anyway, so I'm, I'm talking to this guy, and we're talking about, he's like, Pastor, I'm on the verge of, of, of divorce, and we're just in this place. And most of the time I ask this question, I get hit with the same answer. And it's very telling. I say, when's the last time that y'all went on a date? Do you still date your wife? Well, no, we've just been kind of, I mean, does, does driving through the McDonald's drive-through count? That's the problem right there. Okay, there we found it. No. What, why is it that we stop doing the things that we did when we were in love and expect us to have the same feelings that we did when we were doing the things that contributed to us being in love? Right? So it's very telling. And listen, if you're having struggles in your marriage, that's not the main point of this message. We're going to get to that in this series. But hear me. Date each other again. If you feel like you've lost that loving feeling, go back to the things that contributed to that loving feeling. When, there was a groundbreaking book that came out in, in the relational circle, relational world, called The Five Love Languages. And many of you have heard of it. Some of you have read it. But it talks about these five ways that we communicate love. Quality time, physical touch, which, by the way, is not mine. And I've told many of you that before. I love hugging people. I hug people all the time. But the random touching stuff drives me crazy. But anyway. But nonetheless, my wife loves physical touch. So I'll rub her back. I'll hold her hand. I'll do that. Why? Because it meets her need. Acts of service, gifts, and words of affirmation. Those are typically how most people either give or receive love is two of those five ways. That's, that's what the, kind of the premise of the book is. That you can live your life, excuse me, trying to show your spouse that you love them by doing one of these things that doesn't communicate love to them and completely miss the thing that communicates love to them. Because you're loving them the way that you want to love them, not the way that they want you to love them. Is that making sense? Let's talk about that 
with Jesus. Because Jesus is telling this church, these things that you're doing is great, but you're not communicating, and I'm just giving this as an illustration, okay? You're not giving me my love language. You're not loving me the way that I want and have commanded you to love me. What you're doing is good. Don't stop doing it. He wasn't saying compromise truth. He wasn't saying give in. What he was saying is if you're going to serve me, serve me from a sincere place of love. And he says, go back to those things. Go back to the things you did when you first believed. How did you love Jesus when he first saved you? How did you interact with him when he first rescued you and your love for him was fresh and brand new? Jesus is saying, go back to that. Do the things you did at first. Now, John doesn't tell us specifically what those things were, but I can give you some general ideas that I believe. They were, so, they were so adamant about what was theologically true, I don't think they worshiped anymore. I don't think they actually sang to Jesus anymore. I don't think they were forgiving and gentle any longer. Their hearts were probably grown hard, and I don't think they were helping the widows and the orphans anymore. I don't think they were feeding the poor anymore. Why? Because they weren't loving people the way Jesus told them to because they were all about truth and there was no love. Now, I want to I take a slight turn that I didn't take in the first service, but I want to go to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. What did Paul say to this church that he had planted? It's about six years, I believe, six to eight years after the church was planted. Paul is writing to them, and in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, this is how he's beginning his conversation with them. He says, ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus, listen to this, and your love for God's people everywhere. I've not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you consistently. They were known for their love for people. They were vibrant. They were alive. They had strong faith in Jesus, and they loved God. Contrast that to what Jesus is saying. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did first. In Ephesians 4, Paul's still talking to them, and he says, Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your what? Your love. Because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourself together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. And this is how Paul ends this letter to the Ephesians. This is prophetic all throughout the scriptures. Chapter 6, verse 23, he leaves this letter to them. He says this, peace be with you, dear brothers and sisters, and may God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you love with faithfulness. May God's grace be eternally upon all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you getting the picture? 
of who they were and who Paul was continuing, continuing to remind them they were called to be, what they were supposed to walk worthy of. People full of love, who loved God and loved people. So I ask you, while you're stressed out about life, while you're figuring out what's most important in your life, is Jesus first? Is he the thing you're gritting everything in life, your love for God and your love for his people? Not out of obligation to do more, because I do what I do because I love God. Some of you need to make relationships right, which is something on your to-do list that you don't want to get to, but you need to make relationships right because you love God. You need to forgive someone because you love God. Men, you need to provide for your family because you love God. You need to take responsibility for your actions because you love God. And those things motivate you to do what's right. And when you're motivated by love, it stops being simply an obligation and it becomes something you desire to do because you love him. Say, I'm serving God, pastor, I'm trying. Are you really? Because if you're serving God, you serve him his way, not yours. And he's telling us what his way is. He's telling us my way is you do it because you love me. Is he first? Let's go back to Revelation. Verse 5, going back to that, he says, Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. He's saying, if you don't repent of this, I'm going to remove your church. I'm going to simply remove your church from its place among the churches. And repent, let me just tell you, repent is not a curse word. A lot of times we've heard people say the word repent and we just assume that it's mean-hearted and mean-spirited. No, the Bible says it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's God's goodness that gives us the ability to change. Repent means to change and to go in the opposite direction of the direction we were going in. Jesus says, repent, go in the opposite direction, or I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to remove your church because you're not doing it with love for me in mind. And there are churches all over our country and our world that are staunchly religious and simply go through this task, this task, this liturgy, this, this, and it's cold and callous and there's no love for God or people. Jesus goes on to sing. But this is in your favor. And this brings some balance here. He says, but this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. Not Nickelodeon, Nicolaitans. <laughs> I'm going to tell you who the Nicolaitans were in just a second. And he says, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God, which is a picture, I believe, because in the front of that big temple of Ephesus was that giant tree that everyone came to touch to get life. And Jesus says, I will give you the tree of life. I am the giver of life, not your temple. I am. But he brings balance when he says this. The Nicolaitans, who were the Nicolaitans? The best way I can describe what a Nicolaitan is in our concept would be the churches who teach you 
Grace, 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 grace. You can sin. It's okay. God's grace just covers that. Live, sleep around with your girlfriend. God loves you. Live in sexual immorality. God loves you. Worship. Listen, if you want to bring in a little Buddha, a little Hare Krishna, like the Muslims can't, everything can't be wrong. Let's just be tolerant. That was the belief of the Nicolaitans. And notice what Jesus says. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just like I do. Jesus doesn't hate them, but he hated their deeds. Hate the sin, love the sinner. So he's not by any means telling them, I want you to dumb down truth. He says, no, no, no. I commend you for the stance that you've taken for what's right. I commend you that you've committed to living in a way that doesn't allow, cause you to compromise like the world wants you to compromise. But here is what you have lost. You're no longer doing it because of your love for me. You're no longer doing it because of that pure first love that you had. Go back to that. Remember that. Remember what I did for you. Remember what it felt when I freed you. Remember how you, how you used to talk to me. How you made time to spend time with me. Not out of obligation, but simply out of gratitude and love. Remember how easily you forgave others because you recognized how freely I forgave you. Go back to that or I will remove your lampstand so I ask the church why are you doing what you're doing and who are you doing it for sadly this church was planned like I mentioned in 52 AD about six years later 52 I mean 58 Paul wrote the book of Ephesians this correction comes from the Lord around 96 AD. We don't know for sure how the church responded to this. But what we do know is by 200 AD, the church of Ephesus was no more. It was dead. There was no church of Ephesus, which leads me to believe they didn't adequately heed this warning. So church, when you look at your life and you look at your heart, why are you serving him? Does he have first place? Do you do what you do because you love him? Has he kept that place of prominence in your life that he once had? Or are you just coming because it's what you do? Are you just doing stuff is because, you know, I guess I'm supposed to. This is what I'm asking you to do as I close. Number one, realize Realize what? That if you've fallen from that love, remember how far you've fallen and then repent. Turn. Tell God you're sorry. Go back to that love for him. Remember what, that, what he's done for you and remember what you did when you first loved, when he had that place in your life and then redo the things you once did. So I'm asking everybody to close your eyes and to bow your heads, and I'm going to ask the band to come up. Cody, y'all come on up. Whole band, full band. 
And while your eyes are closed and your heads are bowed, I want you to do business with God. And if you recognize, Pastor, I've lost my first love. I'm no longer motivated by my love for God. I'm just going through the motions. And I believe that it's very telling the Spirit of God was leading Cody to say what he said this morning. We didn't have a conversation that wasn't planned. I believe that is what the Spirit of God is saying to us as a church today. So I want y'all to lead us through whichever of the last songs that you did. And if that's you right where you're at, tell God you're sorry. And refresh that commitment to him. Come on, Cody. I'm sorry when I've just gone through the motions. I'm sorry. I just sang another song. Take me back to where we start. I open up my heart to you. God, I'm sorry when I've come with my agenda. I'm sorry when I forgot you're enough. Take me back to where we start. I open up my heart to you. I'm sorry, God, I'm sorry. Come on, stand to your feet with me. When I've just gone through the motions, I'm sorry. And I just sang another song. Take me back to where we start. That, that really is me. That's my heart. We don't do this often, but we're going to open up the altars. And I want you to come forward. If you say, Pastor, that's me. I, I, want, to, I want to make that fresh commitment. Listen, I'm not saying you're out doing something bad and horrible. Maybe you've been living an upright life and things have been good, but you want to rekindle that love for him. You want to rekindle that emotion. I want you to come up to the front right now. I'm not gonna count, I'm not gonna do anything. Just come up front and we're gonna worship from the front. Come on, we're gonna open up the altars. There are more that need to come. Come on, church. We're gonna worship from the front. Come on, Cody. Jesus, you're wonderful. Jesus, you're worthy. We love you. God, nothing else. Nothing else. Nothing else will do. Nothing else, nothing else, Jesus, nothing else will do. 
nothing else, nothing else will do. We just want you, and nothing else. We need you, Jesus. Jesus, nothing else will do. I don't want anyone else I don't need anything else 